Yesterday was the 4th of July. In Woodacre we have this wonderful kind of village parade. Everybody comes by on their bicycles and horses and whatever and so forth. And it's our day of national independence, celebrating our independence as a nation from England in some fashion. <laughs> right? A nation and all of the very fine and, and uh, quite extraordinary words that were used in the founding of this country, a nation conceived in liberty, freedom and justice, or as Lincoln talked about, devoted to the proposition that all men and women, we hope, are created equal. Um, really quite extraordinary concepts for organizing a society. Liberty, justice, freedom. And it comes around once a year to celebrate that kind of independence. And then the question is, what does independence mean for us? So tonight I want to do a Dharma talk that is a bit unconventional and therefore perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. It will be a somewhat political Dharma talk. Um, which you may or may not like. Uh, they say that if, in the old country, they say that if a master doesn't uh, annoy the um, disciples and have them want him thrown out of town periodically, he's not doing his, or she's not doing her job correctly. So, but the question coming from this celebration of Independence Day yesterday, um, is a very central one to life. What is independence and what is freedom? Is freedom the freedom from some other nation telling you what to do, from Britain, England? Or is freedom to be free of your parents when you grow up? Some of us thought that at a certain stage and then found out not many years later that we were them. You know, there you are raising your children and all of a sudden the words of your father or mother are coming out of your own mouth, right? And even after they die, there you are, they're still, you're still stuck with them, they're still your parents, you know what I mean? So what does it mean to be free? Is it free from the influence of other people? Or freedom from difficulty and pain? Or freedom from loss and sorrow? so we don't have any in our life? Or maybe it's the freedom in this country to import and export what we like, you know, and to sell the most weapons ever sold on the face of the earth each year coming from this country to other countries. 57% of the value of killing machines and arms sales this last couple of years comes from our industry that exports it all around the world, including to the Middle East where we said in that world we shouldn't do that anymore, but yet have sold more weapons to the Middle East since the Kuwait-Iraq war than any time before. Is that freedom? Independence? We are horrified by Bosnia when we look at it. 
or by Northern Ireland. How could the Protestants and Catholics do that when our Protestants and Catholics are more or less civil to one another or get along? I mean, why are they, why are they making such a big fuss about it? But what really is freedom and independence? Independence in spiritual practice, in the teachings of the Buddha, is independence of the heart. And when we come to sit together in meditation or to walk in meditation, we are invited as the Buddha did and as thousands of years, generations of people have done to see the world and see our own life with mindfulness or awareness and with compassion and to see the changing conditions, much of which we can do nothing about, gain and loss and praise and blame, pleasure and sorrow, keep changing and to discover within that an independence of heart, a freedom that is the freedom from entanglement within ourselves in greed and grasping, in aversion and hatred, in ignorance, a a heart that is independent in the face of fear and denial, aggression, grasping, change, birth and death, gain and loss. That's the freedom that's offered in spiritual life. And it's a very powerful form of freedom because it's the freedom that is found in the midst of all the changing conditions of the world. Contemporary freedom is often confused, in our culture anyway, with liberty in the meaning of license, you know? like you get a license at age 16 to drive and then you can go anywhere you want. That kind of license. The license to buy what you want. To drink the kind of beer that you would like. You know, that's American freedom. We don't have just state beer of some kind or other, (laughs) but we have imported beer from around the world and many other kinds. Or to drive the kind of car you want. It's not just the government makes a few makes, but all kinds. But is it freedom? We become slaves. We are slaves in many ways, if we look honestly. Slaves caught in the myths of consumerism or comfort or pleasure or security, retirement, convenience, security we spend as a nation, $50 billion a year on various means for security in our society, security, devices and security, things to keep us secure, $50 billion a year. So much of the society is free to follow the desires, greed, what we want, Hatred, what we don't like, what we want to avoid. Denial. And when we are slaves, caught in grasping, denial, aversion, delusion, 
most fundamentally we don't acknowledge how much pain they cause us, how much fear they cause us. You know, each time I return from village cultures, I was just way up in the coast of British Columbia and other years going to be in different third world countries, I come back and I look at modern life that I live here, the rest of you, and it seems so busy and complicated. And we have these things that we're supposed to make it easier and give us more free time, like our computers and our faxes and our answering machines and the cars that we all each have our own car so we don't have to sit together in mass transportation on the same train or bus or whatever, they tore those up. Does it make us happier? I mean, it seems to me it's getting busier. Even with the computers and the answering machines and the faxes, it's getting crazier. A rich man from the north was upset to find a southern fisherman lying lazily beside his boat, smoking a pipe. Why aren't you fishing, said this industrialist. Because I've caught enough fish for the day, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch some more? What would I do with it? You could earn money, was the reply. More. With that, you could have the motor fixed on your boat, go to deeper waters, catch more fish. <laughs> then you'd make enough to buy nylon nets, bring you more fish, more money. Soon you'd have enough to buy two boats, three, a whole fleet. Then you'd be a rich man like me. And then what would I do? <laughs> then you could really enjoy life. Maybe you could go fishing or something else. <laughs> <in life. laughs> But when we follow the speed of the society and the slavery of grasping and security, there's the pain of wanting, never enough, of fear, of isolation. And we live in a culture that has a tremendous isolation compared to most cultures where people live and they know their neighbors and the shaman on the block and the healer and the, you know, the carpenter and the, their, the aunts and uncles and people still connected. And we see it as a, at a distance. Poem for you. A first on TV, Walter Cronkite. This is the 20th century and you are there preparing to skin a human being alive. Your part will be to remain calm and to participate with the flayer in his work as you follow his hand, the slow, delicate way the knife moves between skin and flesh, see the meat emerge. Rivulets of blood will flow from the naked body over the hands of the flayer. Your eyes will waver and turn away, but turn back to witness the unprecedented, the incredible, for you are there and your part will be to remain calm. You may smash at the screen with your fist, try to reach the program on the phone like a madman, gripping it by the neck as if it were the neck of the flayer. Scream into the receiver, get me station WXYZ at once. Do you hear? But your part will be to remain calm. A first on TV. It's not far from what we see a lot. It really isn't. 
that kind of isolation. So in the last decade, the decade of the growth of the 80s, the wealthiest 1% of our society gained three-quarters of what new income was produced. The poorest members in America lost 20%. And this is the first generation in a long time where many people will be less well-off than their parents. But it's not just general. It's worst for the poor. The poorest members lost the most. And the isolation just isn't our own that we feel, but the isolation in ghettos of African Americans or Latinos, others. Can we separate them out? Are we separate from them, rich and poor or people of color or not, whatever that means? We're clearly not separate. We know that now from the rainforest or the ozone layer or the oceans. I was just in British Columbia and there's a big fight about the fact that these beautiful seabeds, wonderful places for crabs and oysters and clams and fishes and wonderful kind of natural life otters, but the level of dioxin in the water is pretty high from the pulp mills and these gorgeous bays. You can't really eat a lot of the stuff that's there, not to speak of how it feels in the water. Are we separate from the ocean? Or those who are poor, the indentured servants? Spirituality involves the opening of our mind and our heart to end the illusion of separation. It asks us to discover some truth deeper than that small sense of self that lives what we call the body of fear, that lives in isolation. There was a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, premier journal, on cesarean sections, modern medicine. Now we have in our country a very high rate of cesarean sections, almost a quarter of all births, 22% are C-sections for a lot of unnecessary reasons in many cases. Not all of them, sometimes it's necessary. But this study in the uh, JAMA was done, um, and there were three groups. There was a group of women who were in labor, labor in hospitals where there wasn't much attention given to them. That's just how it was. You were put in the room and you were to go through labor and they'd check on you once in a long time and then your birth would happen. And for them, there was a 22% rate of cesarean section. They were on fetal monitors sometimes in a little screen the nurses could watch, ten, the monitors, 10 screens at once or whatever, six of them. 22% cesarean section, 55% epidural anesthetics, people really needing some painkiller for the birth, feeling they did. And then there was a middle group where they were visited periodically by nurses, and the amount of C-sections dropped by a third, and the amount of need for anesthetic dropped by a third. And then there was a group, the third group, who were attended the entire time by really caring, um, attentive caregivers, and the number of the percentage of people who needed cesarean sections in that of women was 7% instead of 22, less than a third. Mm-hmm. 
And the percentage of those needing um, epidural spinal block or, you know, kind of invasive uh, levels of anesthesia was only 8% instead of 55%. You know why that was? Because somebody was there. It's that simple. In Buddhism, there is the archetype of the bodhisattva, the being, the Buddha within us, that cares for life. As Zen Master Dogen said, to be enlightened is to become intimate, to be intimate with all things. And the bodhisattva is awakened when we touch in ourselves that which is committed to the liberation or the well-being of life itself, of all beings, without separating out this group and that group. <coughs> beings are numberless, the Bodhisattva vow traditionally goes. I vow to awaken with them all together, to liberate them all. As long as one being is not free, I am not free. It's a very different notion of independence, isn't it? Here. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I didn't belong to a union. Then they came for me, and by that time, nobody was left to speak up. There is a connection between inner freedom and outer freedom. They're not separate the freedom in ourselves from greed and prejudice and fear, and that outwardly. In British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, where I was just teaching, there's a fight going on between some very large logging companies that want to log along the west coast, which doesn't have roads. It's one of the largest, last temperate rainforests in the world. Incredible old-growth forests. And the local Indians, especially the Haida, Kwakutl, ones that are tribes that are left. And so far, the logging interests, for the most part, are winning to do this. Incredible forests. And then you start to look at what happened to the Indians up there, and there is still some to talk about it around here. There aren't anybody left to talk. A string of deceit, greed, lies, theft, broken treaties, and genocide pretty much every treaty. And it's okay, you know, we can get upset about South Africa. But it wasn't until President Jimmy Carter that the Indians in America had freedom of religion. Up until Jimmy Carter passed a law, um, there were still Indian police spying on and breaking up Indian religious ceremonies. This is the land of freedom. That was till 1978. I believe, I'm coming to believe, that the greatest wound in American society is racism, that it's actually the worst. A society that was built with a history of slavery, lynchings, segregation, and economic slavery which hasn't really addressed it, where it still exists, I think is somehow sick in the core. And so I want to talk about it 
further tonight, not to create guilt, because that's sometimes people's immediate response, but to bring awareness to it, because our heart needs it, to redeem our sense of justice and love, because that's what we value. Particularly here in Marin, which I experience as very isolated racially, you know, and yet we're not really, but it feels that way, far away from Asian, Latino, African American, Native Americans, not so many here. Mostly because we need to address it, we need to learn about justice and love for everybody if we're to survive as a culture. We need to find the beauty in every being, or we won't make it as a culture in this world. One of the key forms of lack of independence, of greed, hatred, and delusion, of lack of freedom, is prejudice by race or skin color. Imagine, I mean, it's such a totally absurd thing if you actually look at it for a moment, that the color of a person determines anything. But yet it's enormous worldwide, them and us, all around the world, over. Tribal fears, those people who are different from us, very deep-seated tribal fears. You couldn't tell a Serb from a Croat, could you? You know, or a Protestant from a Catholic in Ireland, but somehow they figure out how to. And it's so strong in us as human beings the tribal fears of the other, of that person or that group who are different from us. Who is our us and who is our them? Because we all have it. We all have a sense of us and them. And yet, underneath, do we really think that others' feelings or hearts or hopes, any human being is different than our own? Who is your us and them? In the 17th, 18th, 19th century, the first few hundred years and more of this particular country, we imported over the time 15 million slaves. And a lot of white European Americans also came as indentured servants. It wasn't just people of color, but a lot more for a lot longer, were literal slaves captured from their homes, from their villages, children, grown men, fathers, mothers, women, captured at gunpoint, brought to kind of slave forts, and then placed on ships across the ocean, terrible voyages, a lot of people died, and then brought and said, you're going to work as a slave. You are now owned by someone in this way. And the new world was filled, not just this country, but the, the, the West Indies, you know, all of the Caribbean, much of Brazil, all of that labor to make wealth was through slaving. Now it's not literal slavery, but there's a lot of economic slavery of different kinds. One child in five in this country is born in poverty. And poverty here means really poor, the poverty line. It means less than, oh, what is it, $14,000 for a family of four or five, poverty line. Try to live on that. 
know, two or three thousand dollars a year a person. But one child in two, fifty percent almost, of children in African American or Latino families are are born into that kind of poverty. The lead levels in the blood of children in the inner cities because of the tenements and the kind of paint that's used in these old buildings. In 40% of the children, the lead levels are at distressing levels, which means it doesn't take much lead in a child's uh, bloodstream. It means a life of brain damage, greater or lesser extent, in our children in our inner cities. And then the terrible possibilities if you're born in the inner city, lowest income jobs or other places. Very poor health care, terrible schools, TV to raise you with ads of white people showing all kinds of fancy goods, and really a shame about yourself, the shame of your own race or color, because you're not portrayed there. Violence, consumerism, and these are our children in this culture. And basically, if you get close enough to it, to really feel it and sense it, it's an unbelievable amount of pain. Because you would feel that for every single child, if you would know that child when they were born, and watch what they had to face. The shame of not being honored as a human being, or the shame of kind of a dead-end culture. For the sake of our children, to minimize the horror that they must reap, all our children, we must not take refuge in the delusion of racism. Insane. Must end the racial nightmare. That's from James Baldwin. Not for our sake even, although it is, but for our children. Now I'm talking about something that I don't understand very well. I'm still beginning to try to understand and have a lot to learn, which is to say my own racism and prejudice. I see it in unconscious ways I use language and in my fear, us and them, fear of violence when I look at my relation to black American culture and ghettos, fear of this unknown culture, how do I act in there, what might happen to me, fear of violence, fear of being an outcast, fear of not knowing how to act, fear of being more dead and dried up. I go to third world cultures in Bali or India to look for things that are there in Latino or African American culture, but I don't quite know how to connect with it. I see it in my own guilt and remorse. I was just teaching with an African medicine man, wonderful man named Maladoma Somme from Mali, from Burkina Faso, and he wears these incredible grand garments from his tribe as an elder this wonderful blue and white hat that he wears and these great kind of dashiki things. And one day he took his hat and his dashiki off and he just put on ordinary clothes. And I couldn't believe how different he looked. All of a sudden he simply looked like a big black man that I'd meet anywhere on the street. And my whole sense of relating to him changed, not wanting to. He was this beautiful African medicine man and I could take teachings. And all of a sudden he was this big black man like I would meet anywhere in America. And I could feel fear and not knowing how to relate and, and guilt about my own participation in white culture. And all that just come instantly, just looking at him 
and it was scary. We started the Interracial Buddhist Council meeting here periodically. One of the first nights this black man stood up and he said, I tried to raise my kids without any sense of racism, just to instill them a love of life and humanity. And then when they became teenagers, it was so hard for them because they went out unprepared for that and met suspicion, prejudice, fear, lack of opportunity. He said, and you watch beautiful children meet that in the world around them. He said it was so difficult. I mean, when you look at the innocence of children and the potential anyway, and you watch when they lose it, it's a very difficult process. But imagine that if it were your own children. And then I look at myself and I think, now suppose my daughter, you know, the old question, my daughter decides, oh, I'm going to marry this African-American man. And again, I say, wait a second. Not out of lack of appreciation, but what would that do to her life? And how would I be related to that culture? I don't know. So we sit with the horror of the Serbs and the Croats, or the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis, or the Vietnamese and the Cambodians, or the neo-Nazis in Germany. Yet in this culture, the majority of African-American men under 35, teenagers, 20s, 30s, are in some way connected to our criminal justice system on parole or in jail, the majority. Maybe doing penance for us. This is a letter written by Gary Zukoff, who is a teacher and philosopher working in San Quentin. Dear soul brothers, I think of you often and I miss you. This was written during, right after the L.A. riots. I've been watching the scene in L.A. with many of the same feelings that you write to me. Maybe this would be a good topic to discuss when we're together from the point of view of the spirit. I've been watching the actors involved, Rodney King, Reginald Denny, the police, the rioters. The most remarkable aspect of this drama for me was Rodney King's talk on TV. Isn't remarkable the journey that, that his life has taken through a terrible and humiliating beating in order to be able to give a message of love, reconciliation and healing to the entire world with an authority that not one human being can deny him. Can you imagine the impact that would result if Reginald Denny joined Rodney in asking the human family to live together with kindness? The same thing is possible for you. Can you appreciate that in San Quentin you are living in one of the most intense environments of fear and separation on this earth? And that it may be exactly this environment that brings you the intimate knowledge of what needs to be changed, the inner understanding and the authority to live and act and speak of love in a world that needs it so much. Is that possible for you to see as well? So maybe there's some penance being done for us all because it's not, you know, it's not just about crime. Now, it's very confusing, because one could say, as I have, I'm not actively a racist, but there's something kind of passive, passive allowance of it, like the Nazi trains that go by it that people didn't speak about, and, you know. 
Let us bear in mind that a society is judged not so much by the standards attained by its wealthiest and most privileged members, as by the quality of life which it is able to ensure for the weakest of them. If you want to look at the values of a society. Yet it's kind of confusing. I mean, I sit here and I was one of the teachers in this day for people of color. And it's funny because I'm a Jewish man, Jewish American. If I were, I'm a tribal person from the Middle East. If I were a Palestinian from the same place, I would probably be considered a person of color. But as a Jewish person, it's more complicated, even though there were pogroms and killing of Jews in the 12th century, in the 13th, in the 15th, in the 16th, expulsion from Spain and Portugal. And my great-grandmother told about her parents, the pogroms in Russia and Eastern Europe that she knew about, and the Holocaust in Germany. And so I find both in myself, that here I am part of a privileged group in one way, and yet part of a group that has been killed and received some of the most horrific kinds of treatment of any group in the West. Each of us has that. We are each victim and persecutor. The first night we had for the Interracial Buddhist Council, a Buddhist monk from the East Bay, from Richmond, who is an African-American man, came over. Suhita Dharma, who runs an AIDS hospice. And he said just the other day, he wears his robes, and he, in wearing robes he kind of looks like he could be a very dark Indian or Sri Lankan man. He said, I was walking down the street the other day in Richmond. He said, and this black man said to me, he said, why don't you go back to India where you come from? (laughs) My head shaved wearing these robes. He said, and I turned to him and he said, I'm from Louisiana. Where are you from, brother? He said, maybe we should both go back to Africa where we're from. (laughs) And he said, then I struck up a conversation. The guy couldn't believe that I wasn't this Indian man. And I invited him to come over to the temple and talk to me and sit with the brothers who have AIDS. Very important moment. But also, there isn't some part of our life or society that's free from racism. There's black racism and Native American racism and white racism. We all share and we have it in ourselves. The Buddhist teaching offers a radical kind of freedom, both political and universal. When the Buddha was asked, what is a true Brahman, which was the kind of ideal in that society, a true noble person, he said, and this is over and over in his teachings, not by birth is one a Brahman or noble person, not by caste or race, not by family, nor by rank, nor wealth, But by nobility of heart, this and this alone inside is the mark of someone who is a true Brahman, who is a true noble person. Only that, which is a very radical thing to say at that time in that society. And you know what? It's still a radical thing to say and to really live. So this is what is offered when we awaken the great and wise heart of a Buddha. Normally, we're trapped 
We're enslaved by the past conditions, by our fears, by our tribalism that we live in, by our need for security. And racism is part of that. It's part of the state of consciousness of the body of fear of this small sense of self. Normally we are trapped by our liking for pleasure and gain and our fear of pain and loss, by guilt and shame. And the purpose of talking about this is not to make more guilt or shame. We, if we listen, long for nobility, for a real freedom. And the teachings of spiritual life, of the Dharma, offer two great domains for that freedom. One, quite honestly, asks great sacrifice. It's the domain of letting go of the practices that we do of integrity, of virtue, of generosity, over and over again. This is Dorothy Day. She says, As you come to know the seriousness of our situation, the war, the poverty in the world, the racism, you'll come to realize that it's not going to be changed just by words or demonstrations or money. It's a question of living your life in drastically different ways. It's a question of risking your life. So the first vehicle for freedom is a kind of sacrifice of exchanging in the face of a society that has greed as its motto or selfishness as part of its sense of freedom, exchanging that for generosity and giving of time or money or kindness or virtue. And you do it for others, but in the end you discover it's the only thing that makes you happy. For your own heart's sake, little by little, step by step, the amount that you practice, virtue, speaking what's true, acting with honesty, not harming others, not following greed, not following hatred, sure it comes, not following and believing fear, drop by drop, it begins to soften your heart and your being. There's an old story from the tales of the Desert Fathers of how the changing of the heart can never happen by force, but really happens like water dripping on stone, a little bit at a time, a moment of our care, a moment of our attention, one after another. So this is the first vehicle, moment after moment, a willingness to give up some territory for something that's deeper in us. The other great vehicle, beside the practices of attention and 
kindness and virtue is that underlying shift of identity that what's really true for us, what matters, is not our money or our security. It doesn't last. At some point, you'll see. We don't own it. Or our race or our nation. Or even our past history, however terrible it might be or beautiful. Not even the identity with our own body. Not to speak of identity with our race or nation. Or I mean, we're all going to die. It's just how it is. It's not such a big deal, maybe. It's inevitable, isn't it? The shift of identity asks in the question of independence, who are we really? What is our true nature? What is our life if our heart is closed? And what would it be to find that which goes beyond this body of fear, to touch something greater? That's independence and interdependence because we're all connected when we let go. Every particle, everything, every rock, water, flower, human being, all of us, lived some time ago in the flaming heart of one great ancient star before the earth and all things on it came flying out of nothing. We're all a part of that. The irises in your eyes, the tissues of the roses, the giant rocks in the heart of mountains, all were within that star, born flaming. That is us. In each child is all of human history, all the oceans, all the races, all the creatures. In each flower is the sun and the moon and gravity and the stars, all there. And our fear is in our separateness. So the second offering is to sense, just as we sit still or walk, to really listen and sense those boundaries, that body is not who we are. As the Buddha said, sons and daughters of good families, in liberation, in freedom, there is no inner and no outer. So whether it's vision quests or meditation retreats or prayer of the heart or the service that you give, if you enter into the life of the Spirit, you come to listen and hear the true connection of all beings, the freedom in all beings. And the freedom that's true is the infinite freedom of the heart. We can't change many conditions in our life. But we can find that when we sit and honor it and then get up and extend it. Every time we say no when we hear a racist remark or every time we go out of our way to speak about racism or every time we look at the way we live and use money and at the import-export balance in the arms race or the way we drive or use resources or the way we care for our neighborhood or the children in the Bay Area. Every time we act and speak honoring the beauty of every single person, we step out of that small body of fear into a place of freedom that doesn't matter so much when we die. We live from that great heart of a Buddha. Even in the midst of fear and 
denial and greed around us, not saying that we're going to make some perfect society. But we can perfect our heart and offer that. And it's a wonderful thing to do. Story about Walker Lee Younger, author, who was learning about not living a life bound by racism through little acts. If there are no waving flags and marching songs at the barricade, barricades as Walter goes out with his little battalion, it's not because the battle lacks nobility. On the contrary, he is picked up his way, still imperfect and wobbly, in his own human small view, his own destiny. Each time we do this, we and he become, in spite of those who are too intrigued with despair and hatred to see it, King Oedipus, who refuses to tear out his eyes, but looks, attacking the oracle himself. He's that last Jewish patriot manning manning his rifle at Warsaw. He's the young girl who swam into sharks to save a friend just last summer. He's Anne Frank, still believing in people. He's the school children heroes of Little Rock. He's Michelangelo creating David and Beethoven bursting forth with the Ninth Symphony. He's all those things because he has finally reached out in his tiny moment and caught that sweet essence, which is human dignity. And it shines like the old star-touched dream that is in his eyes and in all our eyes when we let it. So sit, please, for a minute. If fear arises, let it come and go like the waves of the ocean. If sorrow or joy arise, let them be felt and let them arise and pass as they will. Rest in the middle of all these things in a greatness and openness of your heart and your being. A true noble person, says the Buddha, is not noble by birth or rank, by wealth or family, by caste or community, but by goodness, by nobility of heart. We each can awaken that and bring that as a gift into the world around us.
I don't know if I've done justice at all to this topic, but I want to keep talking about it periodically because it seems so important. And maybe in talking about it, I'll learn about it. And if you have any thoughts and ideas that can help me, I would be happy to hear them. Let's take, we have about five or ten minutes before nine. Let's take a few minutes. I'd like to see if any one of you would say anything about what you know about racism, as honestly as you can speak. Stand up to do it. If you're going to do it, you have to. <laughs> speak to the farthest person you can see. Prejudice is um, the things that I hear myself saying and I hear other women saying about men. Hmm. <laughs> Do you want to give an example? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I caught myself in moments this week and I heard myself and I went, oh, if a man ever said that about me, I would be outraged. Mm. Thank you. Someone else, please. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, an intolerant of intolerance. Which is to say that it's too painful to feel that and to really touch it with mercy. It's hard to touch it in yourself, your own tolerance. We have so little mercy. And yet that's the only thing that will heal this. Honesty, yes, and some kindness. Thank you. Someone else, please. Um, I, I wrote a poem. It's not, you know, it, it deals a little bit with, uh, I think, with you know, with, with the racism, with the people that we, um, we end up going to war with. Sort of short. Bill Clinton's hairdo is falling from the Iraqi skies on the crown of a Baghdad mosque, in which the newly incinerated corpses are being wept for by a Muslim female deity. Hillary is volunteering to pick up every last strand of the beloved's hair with a silver platter shaped like Ross Perot's radioactive crew cut. <laughs> Bob Dole is combing with his tenderest part the long shiny black hair of a gay Arab man in the US military that he secretly loves. Oh. Meanwhile, in Somalia and Marine City. Meanwhile, in Burma, in the street corners of the canal, dark-haired men and women are being forced to eat the huge piles of shoes our Holocausted ancestors and Hiroshima godchildren wore <coughs> when their incinerated feet, which are still burning in our stockings, last touched the bald, trembling earth. Hmm. Thank you. Someone else. Jack, in, in that really wonderful talk you gave, um, you mentioned several times that um, 
you didn't want, you didn't want to make anybody feel guilty. You just wanted to bring awareness to things, and that caused me to reflect on my on my own guilt. And one of the things I noticed was that sometimes I can really be feeling very compassionate about something terrible going going on in the world, but sometimes the compassion doesn't lead me to do something. But I'm sitting there feeling very compassionate, and it's it's a real feeling. And then I feel guilty, and it seems like that kind of guilt is different. That's I don't know what you would call it, maybe existential guilt, but it's like when we when we don't honor our interconnectedness or our solidarity with people's suffering, I think that indifference creates a sense of guilt that sometimes can motivate us to do things. So I just want to share. Mm. Thank you. If you need guilt to do it, you can have it. It's all right. <laughs> For some people, it will be outrage. Um, and the outrage may not be hatred. The thing that's really important to look at is that in guilt, you often create more racism in some way. Well, there's more of a sense of us and them. Or in outrage, if it's not conscious, you can recreate it. Use what you need to. And the feelings may be and may need to be very, very strong. So I don't mean to say that those won't be there. But to really listen and say, what does it mean to let go of those distinctions of us and them because it's our children it's not their children it's our children and I thank you for that please um, wait one one then two about what A friend of yours was talking this morning about, about how everything is perfect. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's true? That everything is perfect the way it is? Uh, if that's so, I understand that. If that's so, then um, is there any need to be concerned about things? Mm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's sort of the... Then in some ways God has created, or the divine, or the sacred, or out of nothing this world has been created, and it has every form, and we're one form of life doing a peculiar dance, the way the ants are lately, but in larger size, um, and we don't treat one another so well, and yet we're just part of this great dance of consciousness. And that's how it is. Um, and maybe it's just perfect. And yet, and if you just live in that place um, all alone, what would it be? I haven't met anybody that lives just in that place alone successfully, you know, because you can't, because it's only a part of our understanding, even if that's very deep. So I'm glad that you speak of both sides. Yes, someone who was over there. Mm-hmm. Um, to be with each of us in all our differences. Um, 
has a sufficient opportunity to expand on Thank you. One more, please. Who is right here in the middle? Yeah, finally. I, I wanted to uh, comment on your statement that um, you would have major issues if your daughter became involved with a, with a black man. I might, yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to toss out that uh, for me, nothing, nothing cut through my racism, not to the bottom of it, because I was just bottomless like everything else, but Nothing cut through it more than having having a black lover. Mm. So it actually might be something to think about as positive. Beneficial. I have no doubt that's true. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, I think that I mean it's really important what you say. And there's some way if you experience yourself as isolated racially or culturally, that one of the most important things you can do is to step out of that envelope and very consciously commit yourself to being places or being with people in other cultures within, within this society. I think that's an enormously important thing to do. And the closer you can do it, as you say, the better. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.